Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. It's time to get outside. This is KSL Outdoors, brought to you by Trax Power Sports. Two hours of stories and information on hunting, fishing, and high adventure. Our host is Tim Hughes on KSL News Radio. Navidomskis is planning his escape to uh, hit the ski slope, so we'll catch up with him for fish bites coming up in a few minutes. I think they're headed up Little Cottonwood Canyon today. <laughs> It's going to be one of the challenges in his retirement years, and he actually loves to brag up the fact that he, we just never know where he's going to pop up, uh, which is a little scary for his neighbors, actually. It's uh, great to have you with us, so we'll have fish bites in just a minute. I want to bring Bob Grove into the conversation, though, a little bit early. Uh, we'll have our road tripping segment next half hour. G- give us a little tease for what you and uh, Mark are going to talk about if Mark's back yet. Well, you know, I've been spending some time, Mark and I, talking about uh, events around the state. Last week, I talked about some of the events in southwest Utah, and we'll do a little more of that today. And then uh, we're going to go, I personally will be talking more about some of the events, even in Idaho, a little bit farther north in uh, uh, southeast Idaho and in northern Utah. Awesome. All right. So we'll do that in the next half hour. But speaking of events, um, you put a little bug in my ear a week ago about this balloons and tunes roundup that happens on uh, President's Day weekend, which is, uh, what, three weeks away now, February 17, 18, 19, a uh, little more than three weeks away, down in uh, Kanab. How many years have they been doing this? I mean, we'll find out in a minute, but it's been almost a decade, I think, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a f- several years now. The Kanab has done an exceptional job of creating these events during what would con- be considered their off-season to keep people folks coming into the Kanab King County area. And this one has become one of the most popular events during the winter months. One of the last times we were in Kanab, um, we were on our border to border ride where we were riding from Idaho to Arizona on ATVs. You'll remember that. And uh, we sat there on the ridge overlooking Kanab because it was sort of like the end of the ride. And we were pretty sore on the back end end from riding uh, all that way. But what a welcome sight. I can only imagine what that red rock looks like with those balloons floating around. Oh, it's got to be gorgeous. I haven't been to this yet, so I'm hoping to be able to go this year, especially after being at the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta. I've really got hooked on balloons now, so I've got to go check this out uh, with that Red Rock. Jeanette Petros joins us. Uh, She is the assistant director in the Kane County Tourism Office and in charge of events. This sounds like a fun one. Yes, it is. Thank you for calling in. We're, We're happy to share anything we can about our event. Did I get the dates right, 17, 18, 19 this year? Yes, that's correct. All right. And uh, I was guessing a decade, but it hasn't been quite that long, has it? Not quite. This is our ninth year, and we're just getting bigger and better every year. Bob mentioned a minute ago that this is a way where uh, kind of in some of the shoulder seasons you have an excuse or or, uh, give people an excuse to come down to Kanab and enjoy. What are the temperatures like around uh, President's Day for you guys? You know, it kind of changes. We always, of course, are hoping for the best weather we can get. But quite often, you'll find that people are walking around in short sleeve shirts, 
and it's pretty mild weather. I mean, we do have times when it's colder, and then you just bundle up and wear your coat. But either way, if you wear layers, you can pretty much visit Kanab any time of year. Well, by the way, my experience with hot air balloons is that they actually fly better when the air is cooler. That's why they're always lifting off in the mornings when there isn't much of a wind. That's right. And that's why we do this event in the winter as well, because in the summer it just gets too hot down here. How many balloons are you expecting? Uh, we've got 40 right now. So we're, we're really excited. Bob, you may be a little spoiled if you went to uh, the, the, the uh, one of the biggest hot air balloon events. But, man, I can only imagine 40 balloons up against this red rock would really be spectacular. Well, I tell you, as a photographer, that would be phenomenal to see those balloons up against the red rock. So, you know, I'm looking at my calendar and trying to figure out there's a lot of options for President's Day weekend. But this one looks like a really good one, and it's close to home. I have some experience with this uh, ballooning thing. I've been in two hot air balloons, two different occasions, uh, Jeanette, but I also worked and helped to organize uh, for several years uh, an effort to have a balloon fest that happened out on Antelope Island here uh, between Salt Lake and Ogden. And I learned a little something about these balloon pilots. It's a pretty tight-knit group. It really is. And that's what's so fun is we have pilots that have been coming the whole nine years we've been having it. And it's a really fun, not only an event of the balloons watching and seeing the beauty of that, but the pilots and the camaraderie that they have. And they love Kanab and we love having them here. It's just, it's really just a fun weekend. Yeah, they take great pride in being able to show off uh, their beautiful canopies to everybody that comes along. Yes, they do. And in fact, Saturday night after the, the lunch that morning, that night at 7 p.m., we do what we call a balloon glow, where we'll have up to 17 pilots and they'll line our main street. We close the street. So it's like a parade of hot air balloons and they're just lined up the street. Wow. And you know, Bob, uh, speaking of taking great pictures, that's an opportunity right there. Yeah, it is. I was able to get some pretty nice pictures in Albuquerque at the Balloon Fiesta with the glow. We we had bad weather all that week I was there. It was rainy most of the time. We had a couple of little windows that opened up for us. But that is a spectacular time to see these balloons when they're all aglow. I, I'm wondering also, Tim, you know, that they're, at the end of balloons, there's also tunes. Ah, yes. Tell us about the tunes part of this. Yes, the tunes, that's, all, that's really a fun thing to attend. Uh, we have a, a big street fair, uh, and it has uh, 45 vendors. And then at the end of the street fair, we have a giant stage where we have bands coming from all over Utah and the surrounding area, and they do a show. So there's all there's bands playing all day, both Friday and Saturday. And then we end on Friday night with the lantern launch, where you can light your own lantern. And then Saturday night with the balloon glow. Hmm. I, I did look on the website. I'm there now, which is uh, visitsouthernutah.com. You can take a link to events from there or just put a forward slash balloons and tunes roundup. But um, you're still looking? It looks like you're still looking for bands. There's an application to be filled out. Oh, actually, we probably need to take that down because oh. we were all set. We oh, just good. got our final band just recently, so I better take that down. But, yes, <laughs> we've got our bands all set. People actually, now that we're becoming so well-known, we have bands really looking forward to the event and reaching out to us, actually. Where did the balloons actually launch from? Uh, it's out east of Kanab. Just, it's still in Kanab, but it's just on the east side of town, surrounded by the Red Cliffs. If you go on the website, you can see the area, what it looks like. But it's uh, our old golf course. 
So it's a nice area that's got lots of open space. And they launch from there, and then they take off. And a really beautiful thing is they go down and sometimes fly over our new reservoir that we have, the Jackson Flat Reservoir. Oh, beautiful. Or they, Yeah, or they fly over the cliffs. It's just amazing. Yeah. Really beautiful. Yeah. Um, Bob, as much as the balloons and the tunes sound like uh, a, a, a good time, Canab always offers a lot of uh, things that people may not expect, including the chance to see where John Wayne used to stay when he was in town. That's right. They have it's it is Little Hollywood uh, after all. You know they've had a lot of movies, western movies especially, filmed in that area, and it is central to so much of that landscape. I mean, it's a natural setting and stage for western movies and other types needing that landscape but yeah it's uh, the other thing i like about canab not only the movie industry you know that's also where gunsmoke was filmed during the series in johnson canyon but also it's central to everything to lake powell grand canyon zion national park bryce canyon i mean it's park central did i steal that from someone jeanette <laughs> <laughs> I think you did. I, yeah, Park Central, that's a good one. Copyright we infringement. Call ourselves, we often say we're the heart of the parks. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking at some of the pictures. I'm sorry, I'm a little distracted here. But uh, this uh, lantern launch is really something. I'm trying to remember which Disney movie it was. Was it Rapunzel? Uh, what was the name of that? Oh, Tangled. Or is it Frozen? Or Tangled. Tangled. Uh, toward the end of the movie when they're launching all of these lanterns up into the sky. That's another spectacular moment, and uh, the kids would really enjoy. What do people need to know about finding a place to stay? Uh, I would start looking now. Go online. Uh, We have hotels listed on our site, visitsouthernutah.com. Also, there's information on our website, balloonsandtunesroundup.com, or you can follow us on social media, Facebook, or Instagram. I love what the website has at the top. Canab, magically unspoiled. Really says it all. Jeanette, thank you. Yes, thank you for having me today. Uh, The uh, Balloons and Tunes Roundup coming up February 17, 18, 19. Uh, If you can, get down there and enjoy it with uh, the entire family. But make sure you get a hotel room soon. Got to take a break. When we come back, uh, Navi will be back with us, I hope, anyway, uh, riding along on his way up to Little Cottonwood Canyon. Going to ski today at uh, Snowbird, so that's next. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Stupid and women roll their eyes. And Tammy does a shimmy at the fish fry. Yeah.
Coming up right after the top of the hour, Mark Hadley, our old friend, will be joining us. Uh, he's now the Northern Utah Outreach Manager, and we're going to talk about some emergency deer feeding that is underway here in the state of Utah. Time for fish bites, uh, but more importantly, it's time to play a little game we are going to call Where is Navi? <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a minute ago, he was in his uh, recliner in the front room. Now he's in the car, probably headed skiing somewhere, I'm going to guess. On my way to Snowbird. That's what I thought. All right, so you wanted to talk about a specific species today, the Browns, I believe, in our fish bite segment. Yeah, I said last week I would talk about all the Utah fish, all the game fish, and their life cycles, spawning cycles, and tendencies, which are all interesting. And I, I started with the brown trout for no particular reason. I have a bias towards brown trout, but I just thought we'd pick on them first because they're definitely prolific in our, you know, canyon rivers on the Wasatch Front. Okay. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start at the beginning. You know, um, yes, this fish is an immigrant. And for that reason, he does have enemies. Um, There's a lot of people who really don't want the brown trout here. Um, I'm not one of them. I absolutely love these fish and i think they contribute in a great way um but there are some people who wanted to get it back to you know the way it was before white man arrived arrived in the valley i don't know why that's a better scenario but browns were introduced to the united states three times um the first attempt was 1864 um some uh, eggs from europe came over into new york but they didn't do very well i mean you have to understand, this is pre-electricity. Yeah. And then in 1883, another bunch came, and these came from some baron in Germany. That's why people refer to them oftentimes in Utah as German browns. And that one actually did very well. Um, they put it on the train and sent it west. They, of course, put it all over the rivers of New York. And, and then, again, they did it in 1889, which is another very successful introduction. Now, we didn't get them till much later than that because we're a basin here. And there are some people who think the rainbow's a better fish. You know, everybody has their opinion about what's beautiful. I like the browns because they're hardy, because they're aggressive, because they're so much fun to catch. But that is part of the reason why a lot of people don't like them. I don't want to de- I don't want to derail derail your thoughts for a moment. Can but can you tell me tell our listeners what the reason for bringing them here was? Was it as a food source? No, no, it's angling. Okay. Um, it, this is much later. Um, our trout populations were never used as forage for our population. They were all about sport. We, you know, we, the whitefish in the Weaver River kept pretty much all of Summit County alive because everybody was, you know, getting nets into the river to eat. They were eating those whites. They, they actually put them in barrels and pickled them. So that was a food source, and there was also an attempt on Utah Lake to make that a fishery and a food source. They had a big steamboat, and they gathered fish and nets, but this has nothing to do with the brown. All right. And the brown came much later. In fact, there were no ra- there were no trout, really, other than the cuts, the Bonnevilles, before 1930 in, the United- in Utah. But they got into our rivers, and they have taken over, and that's part of the criticism. But that's why it's so wonderful to fish here because the browns are so prolific. Now, what are their tendencies and life cycles? And first, let's understand that they do go nocturnal, and, and they have the ability to go nocturnal, and they do in Utah. 
and that's how they've survived our, our three or triple-digit summers, okay? These fish were, are prolific in Scotland and Germany where it's very cool, very misty, and we have blue skies and triple digits in the summer, and they hate it, okay? So they go under a bank into a log, and they endure the summer, but they feed nocturnally. So a lot of people don't like them because they're so-called hard to catch, and they're not hard to catch. You just got to think like a brown. And one of the things in the summer months, if you're going to fish, when people like to fish, you got to fish in the evenings at night or early, early morning before light. Um, but all winter long, they're just amazing. So those fish are awesome. They spawn in the fall. And um, they're very hardy, as I said. You know, they're, they're aggressive. They're aggressive when they make their reds. Their favorite food um, isn't invertebrates, which most trout like. They actually prefer fish. So they eat minnow populations, including fry, but also sculpins. Sculpins is their favorite food by far. And by the way, it's illegal to fish with a sculpin, a live sculpin or a dead sculpin in the state of Utah. Mm. But you can do patterns that look like sculpins and the browns level. They get quite large. They go like 12 to 22. Um, and they're torpedo in shape, which makes them very hard to bring in. And look, every reason why a fly fisherman would love them, love the browns. Yeah. I know I do. I haven't caught many in my life, but when I have, it's always when you're by my side doing this. That's a fish. That's a fish. <laughs> set. Set. <laughs> that's why we love you. All right. That's your fish bites for this week. We've got uh, ABC News at the top of the hour. On the other side, we're going to talk deer and an emergency situation out there in the state of Utah, mostly because of the weather. We'll let Mark Hadley explain that to you next. The top of the meal, you got a strawberry blonde. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.